I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, podcast fans. A quick announcement before today's episode. We are delighted to say that there will be a Total Football Live special taking place on Wednesday the 31st of May. You can be a part of it here at The Telegraph, in the audience, asking questions and seeing words come out of my mouth with your own eyes. I think that's how it works. To be in with a chance of a ticket, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash total football. We'll have more details for you soon, and I very much look forward to seeing you there. On with the show. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. The Premier League season has reached its agreed point of conclusion with a record points total for Manchester City, an emotional farewell for Arsene Wenger and a good old-fashioned bout of extreme football silliness at Wembley Stadium. All that and more covered over the next 45 minutes or so as we attempt to sum up this campaign and ponder what summer holds for the Premier League's class of 2018. We'll look ahead to this week's World Cup squad announcement from Gareth Southgate with a former England international who is cautiously optimistic about the country's chances in Russia. Plus a trip to America which Wayne Rooney may also be making this summer. Who would be the winner in a deal taking him to DC United? The club, the player or a small number of expat Evertonians? But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by our football news correspondent, Matt Law. Matt, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Fresh from the London Stadium. Always a pleasure to visit the London Stadium. As we well know, Matt, um, the the table and the season dictates we should start with Manchester City. 100 points secured, an all-time Premier League record, done at the last against Southampton. Gabriel Jesus scoring in the dying minutes. Does this put to bed the arguments about whether or not they're the best ever Premier League side? Probably. I also think that it it gives them a sort of marker. They're not just going to be Manchester City who had an amazing season in 2018 or Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. They're Manchester City who got 100 points and set a record and scored 106 goals at the same time. 100 points is just such a nice round figure. We all like a nice round figure to cling onto and, and tag onto a team. But I actually do think that will be significant for them in, in terms of history and in terms of people remembering the achievement. Does that do something for them? Does it help them next season in any way, having that sort of landmark? 
if anything, I think Guardiola said this afterwards, I think if anything, it will make it a little bit difficult for them next season because it's going to be hard to keep that up and, and it's a very easy thing to throw at them that, that they won't be quite on track of the same amount of points next season. It's an awful lot to live up to, but um, I, I was at the London Stadium, so I haven't seen it, but I hear there are actually big celebrations when, when Gabriel Jesus scored. And that probably shows you how much they wanted to hit that 100. Yeah, it's like a bench-clearing moment. Uh, That that goal at the end, running into the fans, really delightful to see. We've seen influential sides before in the Premier League. There were a lot of kind of knock-off cheap versions of the glory-era Arsenal and some less exciting versions of very functional teams like uh, Mourinho's Chelsea. Are this City team doing anything that other sides can learn from and perhaps replicate? Oof, that's difficult. I mean, the, the thing with this City team that's scary is that they're so young. A lot of those the, these teams who who hit these periods are, are, are right in a peak of sort of 26, 27. Um, and this is a very young City team, which I know scares the living daylights out of all their rivals. Also, I, it's, it's, I'm told it's not easy just to sort of pick up a Emmanuel and try and do exactly what Pep Guardiola does. I don't know the intricacies behind it, but I, I suspect it's very difficult just to copy them. And to play their game is actually extremely risky. I mean, they press so high up the pitch. They attack with numbers. I mean, unless you've got an incredibly, incredibly talented bunch of players, which is obviously going to be incredibly expensive, you get thrashed doing that a lot of the time. What about Southampton? Has Mark Hughes secured his future at the club, do you think, in the time he's been there? I'd imagine so. I, I mean, he's he's done what he was brought in to do. I mean, even to be fair to them, even when they were losing games a few weeks ago, they were leading in a lot of games. I mean, obviously there was the Chelsea game, um, there was the Arsenal game at the Emirates that they, they could have got something out of. So I always thought when they were losing, they looked like there was enough there with Hughes, that, that there was a spirit and they just needed to get over the line in a game. And so I, I, I certainly think he, he deserves another go, yeah. Moving on to Chelsea, Matt, defeated 3-0 up at Newcastle in uh, perhaps the biggest shock result of the final day of the season. Does this result make any difference for Conte's future? No, because I, th- I think it was pretty certain he was he was going anyway. Um, all it does is it makes a difference to, I think there'll be less debate over it when it happens. I mean, it, it seems incredible, but come after the FA Cup final, when I'm, I'm assuming we will hear the news pretty quickly, um, normally a manager who had won the, the Premier League the previous season and might still win the FA Cup, there'd be a huge debate over what, what have this club done by sacking him. I actually think with the weeks that go past, that, that debate's going to be smaller and smaller and there's going to be less dissenting voices about would, it. Would you expect a Louis van Gaal-style situation sacked after winning the Cup final? <laughs> Never rule it out with Chelsea. I mean, they did Ancelotti in the uh, in the tunnel at Everton, famously, they after the last it. game. It sounds like they killed him. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um no, I mean, they, they they sacked him in the tunnel at Everton after the last game of the season. So they they could do it. It doesn't make any sense to waste any time because there's not a, it's a very short summer with the World Cup and the early closure of the transfer window. It was Spurs 5, Leicester 4 at Wembley. Spurs back from 3-1 down. No trophy for them, as has been mentioned. But do you think the season-long experiment at Wembley, it went about as well as could be expected? Yeah, I actually um, thought they would have a tough tougher season this season I thought they could easily finish sort of sixth because of Wembley because last season they were unbeaten at home at White Hart Lane I just thought the drop off from that from Wembley is, is really going to affect them I actually think they've, they've done brilliantly I think it's a really good achievement for them to, to finish third um, and to get into those Champions League places again playing 
it's not away from home. They've made it home, but they've done far better there than I expected them to. And all on track with the new stadium, by all accounts. They tell us so. <laughs> we'll wait and Why see. would we disbelieve them? Absolutely. Football clubs, extremely honest organisations. It was Liverpool 4, Brighton nil up at Anfield. Liverpool needed a win uh, to secure that Champions League spot, a full-strength team for them. They were just sort of thrillingly overwhelming Brighton in this game to get it done. Do you think they can do something similar against Real Madrid? They're just going to throw attacking players at the situation and hope it's all a bit much? I think that's probably their best chance, as stupid as it sounds. Um, and as naive as it sounds, but I do think, you know, in the Champions League, Liverpool have had these spells in games where they have just overwhelmed opposition. I read a really interesting article a couple of weeks ago highlighting the fact that a lot of their goals in the Champions League have come in clusters, so 20-minute clusters of two or three goals where they've obviously just bamboozled teams completely. And with with kind of Real Madrid's slight defensive frailties and their age, that probably is their best chance against Madrid. If it goes in... It's one of these real tactical battles you'd have thought Madrid's nous would, would come through for them. At Huddersfield, it was a 1-0 win for Arsenal in Arsene Wenger's final game, uh, signing off with a first away win of 2018. Your story on Sunday's paper, Matt, says Mikel Arteta is now the favoured man to take over at Arsenal. What sort of manager do you think he would be? And how do you think the club and the fans would react if he had a tricky spell, say five games without a win in his first season? Well... I- I think the manager they hope he will be is basically like Pep. I mean, everybody's looking for the next Pep Guardiola or the closest thing to Pep Guardiola. This isn't the only reason they like Mikel Arteta, but the fact he's worked with Pep now for two years is a massive draw and a massive hope that he could actually, you know, he's got the keys. He he should know the, the secrets, as it were. Certainly, if the club go for Arteta, I don't, think Arsenal are the kind of club who are going to panic if he goes through a tricky spell. I would imagine if they're sensible, they will anticipate he will have a tricky spell. The fans is a different one, although Arteta's a popular figure at Arsenal and he's a well-respected figure and I do think that would help to buy him a little over time. If they're going to go for a young coach and you look at maybe Arteta and Nagelsmann over at Hoffenheim, obviously Nagelsmann's done the job and achieved. He's, he's got Hoffenheim into the Champions League. But he doesn't have that connection with the club or the Premier League. And if he were to come in and have a difficult time, he could get written off a lot quicker than someone Arteta, who I think they'd be willing to, to try and make it work for him. It does seem by its nature quite risky to appoint someone without any managerial experience. But do you think some managers are just clearly going to be so good at the job that it doesn't really matter? You can throw them in at such a high level and, and it will work out. Well, it happened with Pep Guardiola, didn't it? And I mean, that's what everybody's kind of hoping happens with, with various other people. Um I'd, it's such a difficult question to answer that. I I think they have to take a risk. I think their position they're in, okay, if they could get Allegri, Allegri would be what you would think would be a safe top profile appointment. I've got my doubts as to whether Allegri would, would take that job. It is a bit of a step down, isn't it? To go step, from one of Europe's biggest clubs, clearly the biggest club in their country, to Arsenal. It's a bit of a step down. I don't think that they, he would have the same budget as Arsenal as he would at Juventus. I also think... At some point, he he would have what he would consider better offers, whether it be this summer or next summer, if he continued doing what he's doing. So I just don't see that it's that attractive for him. If you can't get Allegri, realistically, you're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to take a punt on somebody. So why not Arteta, who's been working at the Champions, working with the manager we all think is the best manager in the world and has a great connection with the club? 
You had the honour on Sunday, Matt, of covering West Ham 3, Everton 1. Uh, David Moyes signing off with a win for West Ham. Do you think he will be signing off for good with that result? He keeps talking like he's going to. He, he won't actually say for sure, but today he said his contract expires at midnight and he said that if it's not to be West Ham, he's going to have other options. He also said he would like to make a lot of changes. Maybe not everybody else wants to make changes. There's just a lot of hints in there. What sort of changes? Move back to Upton Park? Uh, I think <laughs> that'd be the change they'd all love, wouldn't it? I think more more to do with the public nature of the club, shall we say, and also the budget. Um, but also from West Ham's perspective, I'm not sure they're completely sold. I think they worry with David Moyes that while he's done a very good job in the role he's got, they could find by October next season that the, the fans have decided they, they don't want David Moyes and think he's too negative. It's all a bit ridiculous, but it's heading towards a change, I think. What about Sam Allardyce? He seemed to almost be taking the mickey out of Everton fans with his team. Uh, incredibly defensive setup for a, a fairly meaningless game at the end of the season. Uh, what sort of mood was he in after the game? Not a very good mood. He spoke about his future and he actually said that he can't be confident on it because there's no smoke without fire referring to the pieces in the newspapers that have been written about who might get the job instead of him. And then, interestingly, then went on to Wayne Rooney and accused all the press of making up lies about his relationship with Rooney and walked out of the press conference. So on one hand, there's no smoke without fire, and on the other hand, it's all absolute lies and we're just making everything up. So he wasn't in a great mood. He looked and seemed like a man under pressure. I do feel a bit sorry for him. They do play horrible football but they are eighth and I can see from his point of view it would be annoying that you constantly get abused at every away game when your team are eighth and he got it from both fan, both sets of fans today which will have hurt him deeply unpleasant have you seen him do that sort of thing before storming out of a press conference he's usually he's... quite no he's usually quite good like that he's usually um, he's so thick skinned and he'll usually throw things back at you and, and kind of throw a stat back at you or throw an opinion back at you or challenge you rather than getting annoyed with you or just kind of accusing you of lying. So no, he's not normally like that, which again makes me sense that he thinks he's in trouble. Manchester United won Watford nil up at Old Trafford. Man United grinding out a win as they have done so many times this season. Uh, Michael Carrick's final game for them. I know he's staying on at the club as a coach, but do you think he'll be a tough player to replace for them as well, obviously? Reduced role in recent years, but there are a few who can pass the ball as well as him. Yeah, I think he already has been a, a tough one to replace because I think probably they've been trying to phase him out now for a couple of years and they've brought in players, Fellaini, Herrera, who've done okay in various roles but not really brought what he what he's brought. And um, they've obviously sort of had to keep going with him, albeit, you know, obviously playing a few less games. But he will be a, a tough player to replace. Matic again. But he's just a real classic holding player. He's not quite quite a Michael Carrick. And not only will they struggle to replace him as a footballer, they'll struggle to replace him as a character and somebody who feels Manchester United. I mean, I know he didn't come through the ranks there, but he was there for an awful long time and he got it. And he's he's a, feels like one of the few of a last of an era there who, who are sort of being phased out now. A shame, but we, uh, we, we've we enjoyed some good times with Michael Carrick. Uh, we've also enjoyed some good times with Swansea City, Stoke City and West Brom. All we are saying goodbye to this season, all relegated. Swansea lost 2-1 at home to Stoke. West Brom defeated 2-0 by Crystal Palace on the final day. Which of these three relegated clubs is in the best shape, Matt? Oh, good question. Right, not Swansea. 
<laughs> their recruitment has been terrible and they're going to have to change manager again. If West Brom keep Darren Moore, I think West Brom, if they do the sensible thing and keep Darren Moore, I think they've got a squad there that's shown it's more than capable in the re- in recent weeks of, of doing okay and certainly should be capable of getting back up. And they've got a manager there who has done an incredible job, who that squad obviously really like and will play for. It, it will depend on the amount of change. Stoke are going to change manager and have quite a big player turnaround, I think. So it's very difficult to predict what kind of shape they will be in. But I, I actually fear for Swansea. I think Swansea could, could disappear a little bit from... The, uh, the Premier League picture, shall we say, for quite some time. Yeah, they do have the feeling of a, a team like Wigan, perhaps, who have been slightly above their historical level now for a while and, and we might not be seeing them for a while at the top point. Yeah, and I, I just think they've got an awful lot of work to do and, and since they had the American takeover, they've made a lot of bad decisions. I'd be very surprised if they're challenging to come straight back up. Yeah, that red and blue away kit this year was a really terrible decision. <laughs> Finally, Matt, Burnley won Bournemouth 2, the two longest-serving managers in the league now, of course, that Wenger has gone uh, in Sean Dyche and Eddie Howe. Will both of them be with these clubs at the beginning of this next season? Good question. I was at the FWA dinner in the week which you decided not to come to. Well, look, I got, I got the call up very, very late <laughs> for that do, Matt. And in fairness, my football writing has uh, has not been all that prolific in the past couple of years. Yeah, well... More excuses. of a multimedia guy these days. Nice excuses, but okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I got chatting to a, a contact who, who was telling me that he thought that Rafa Benitez would get the Leicester job and that Sean Dyche would then go to Newcastle. There you go. But... I, if I were to put my money on, I would bet that Sean Dyche does at least a season in Europe with Burnley, given what he's achieved there. Eddie Howe, it's a funny one, Eddie Howe. He gets linked with everything. And we, we talk him up as being this manager who who really, this young manager who deserves a chance, which is true. And yet it's always very hard to, to place him with a club. I always think that the day Pochettino leaves Tottenham, he'll surely be, be in the race for that. But I can't see, unless something unexpected happens, I can't really see that there's a job particularly out there for him that would be attractive to him. I mean, He's quite Ham- a cautious fella, isn't he, How he, he always seems sort of quite guarded and, and quite serene. Yeah, and I think and he may- knows- maybe he's happy. Maybe he knows, I- like, this is the club I want to be at. I think that's it. I think he knows what he's got. I mean, Bournemouth do spend money. They've got a wealthy backer for the level of club they are. They're a settled club. They value him. So when you talk about looking at the table, West Ham are one place below them. And you know this club who, who come out with huge, huge claims every season, and they'll probably be looking for a manager. Eddie Howe, I, I can't see for a million years swapping Bournemouth for West Ham this summer. So you start to look up; he's not getting a mention for Everton. So I just don't see the job, right job coming up for Eddie Howe at the moment. Stay in Bournemouth. Some lovely restaurants just down the road in Boscombe as well. Let's sum up the season then, Matt. A few different ways uh, we should be doing this. Manager of the year is being announced on Tuesday. Presumably, it's an easy win for Pep Guardiola. But what do you think is harder, getting City to play as well as he has or managing Burnley into Europe, for example? Or keeping Huddersfield up. Or Palace from where they started. Yeah, I think this is the, the first season in a long time where I you could make a case for an awful lot of managers. I mean, obviously, the, there's Pep. I mean, if Liverpool to go, were to go on and win the Champions League, Klopp's a great shout. You've got Dyche, who's done a wonderful job. You've got Wagner, who's done a wonderful job. You've got Roy Hodgson, who I actually, I think we did an online piece about this recently. I put forward Roy Hodgson's case. There's an awful, awful lot of managers who you could 
make a very credible case for. Personally, if I was to give it out, I would probably go for Daesh. I think there's been a lot of pieces this week written where they've compared the the value to the amount of points they've they've earned, and Daesh and Burnley have come out on top of all that. But I mean, being at Chelsea this week when Huddersfield stayed up, Frank has done an incredible job there. Not only to get them in the Premier League, but then to, to get. I thought they'd get about twelve points this season. They've done amazingly. Who decides manager of the year? Don't know. <laughs> top, top, top journalism. What will be the transfer sagas we're going to be collectively bored of hearing about this summer? I think there's going to be a lot of Gareth Bale. He's been on the bench an awful lot at Real Madrid. There's a big overhaul coming at Real Madrid. We get a lot of Gareth Bale every summer, which a lot of the time is unrealistic. Um, I think this summer it could be more realistic, which I think will crank it up further. So I think we'll have a lot of Gareth Bale. I know this one won't affect Premier League clubs, but I think we're going to have a lot of Neymar, obviously potentially two Real Madrid. I just think that's going to go all through the summer. And then, I mean, in this country, it's uh, it's quite difficult to call at the moment. I mean, you're going to have a lot surrounding Eden Hazard and Thibaut Courtois at Chelsea and whether they'll stay or go. And a lot surrounding, I would imagine, Arsenal when they get a new manager. I can't off the top of my head think of a player um, a really top Premier League player who who so desperately wants out, other than maybe a Courtois or a Hazard, that a, that a saga is going to revolve around. But these things usually take a little bit of time to, to swing into action. But Bale, I think, is the one that's going to get an awful lot. We can disregard worrying chat about Kane and Salah this summer, do you think? I think so, yeah. I can't see either of those happening. Zaha, there might be quite a lot about. But yeah, I can't see Kane or Salah going anywhere. I'm fairly sure Wilfred Zaha drove past me on Penge High Street this week. It was a very exciting moment. I look, I'm not great with faces. I saw an amazing car coming towards me. I thought, that looks like Wilf Zaha. And I turned round as it sped past me, and it had a personalised number plate which suggested that it was actually Wilfred Zaha. Excellent. It was, it was an exciting moment. It more than made up for not going to the football writers do. Uh, we've spent all season talking about the players you would probably expect. Salah, De Bruyne, Crouchy. Uh, but who has impressed you most this season, Matt, and perhaps flown slightly more under the radar? Yeah, I mean, looking at, um, looking at the, the slightly lower clubs who don't often get a shout in these things, the defender Schindler at Huddersfield has been excellent. He was excellent at Stamford Bridge, but he's had an excellent season. He's, he's done really well. Um, I think Gross at, at Brighton has, has had a really good season, um, really strong season. So I, I mean, they're they're two players, sort of lower down the food chain, um, players who obviously are, are well known, but I don't think have been getting a huge shout among player of the year nominations as such. Jan Vertonghen at Tottenham, he often gets overlooked because we all talk about Kane, Eriksson, all that. Jan Vertonghen's had a brilliant season. I think he's Tottenham's player of the season. Wilfred Zaha, talking of your man, your <laughs> car friend. Penge favourite. Yes. he. Uh, I don't think there's a player who their club relies as heavily on as Wilfred Zaha and Crystal Palace. Obviously, Salah, amazing, done amazing things for Liverpool. But Liverpool can win without Mohamed Salah. Crystal Palace cannot win without Wilfred Zaha. He just absolutely carries them. He's, he does incredibly for them. He carries that whole team and club. Um, both with his talent and just the effect he seems to have on everybody around him. So I, I think he is so key to them. Another one I, I also don't ever think gets the recognition he quite deserves of, of just carrying on doing it. Vardy, Vardy again today. His record against top six clubs 
is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Puts Lukaku and some of the others to shame. Two more goals against the top six club today. He's carried on doing it and doing it and doing it. And he's done it by staying at Leicester and hasn't gone. And I think he deserves a lot of credit as well. Good news for England, perhaps going into the World Cup. Are there any trends or fashions you would like to see eliminated from the Premier League next season? That dance. What's that dance off the <laughs> off the computer game? The flossing one? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know much about it, but it's rubbish. That should definitely go. Paul Although, Gascoigne had a go at it today. At oh, did he? I'd have liked, I've, actually, having just said that, I'd like to see Paul Gascoigne <laughs> have a go at it. Um, the, the silly handshakes, they can go. Yeah, anything that I feel too old for can go. <laughs> Need to get on Fortnite, Matt. Finally, what will this season be remembered for? Manchester City, 100 points. It has to be. I mean, it, Mohamed Salah, obviously he's broken he's broken the Premier League scoring record, hasn't he now, with the 32 goals in a 38-game season. So his form as an individual will be remembered. But as a whole... This is Manchester City season. It's the 100 points. It's the 106 goals. It's the Pep Guardiola football. It's Kevin De Bruyne, who I feel a bit sorry for because, you know, on any other year, I think he'd handsomely win player of the year. It, it, it is just the Manchester City season, as simple as that. The Centurion season. Gareth Southgate names his England squad for the World Cup on Wednesday, but which 23 will be lucky enough to be spending their summer holidays in Russia? Former England goalkeeper Rachel Brown-Finnis joins us now. Rachel, are you expecting any big surprises in this squad? I think given there's been a few key injuries, like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Adam Lallana, that there are some notable people who might get kind of late call-ups. I know there's been interest in, in trying to rekindle Jamie Milner's career and trying to oust him out of retirement potentially, given the the excellent and solid season that he's had at Liverpool and, and the solid performances and also kind of lack of midfield choices uh, that England potentially have. So there could be a few surprises, um, you know, Ryan Sessegnon, for instance, why not, you know, in past uh, managers of taking gambles on young sensations. Um, So I don't think it's all kind of a foregone conclusion as to what the squad is. Gareth Southgate seems very confident of what his, I would say, 20 are. But I think there's still two or three places that may sort of people raise an eyebrow at when the squad comes out on Wednesday. Which areas of the squad do you think are strongest and weakest for England? Well, I've been really impressed in the warm-up games with the playing the three at the back. I really like that formation. I think it lends itself to more attacking uh, play by England, more creative play. And I think uh, if we have a, a wealth of, of anything uh, in this current England squad, we have some really exciting attacking players. You know, Deli Ali's not had his, his, his best season, but I still think at his best, he, you know, he can be sensational, especially... Um, the, the link-up play that potentially there will be with Harry Kane. So I, I think that'd be a strength. And the likes of then Carl Walker, whether he plays right of the three uh, or whether he plays wing-back, um, it's looking like he might play right of the three. I think the wing-backs that we, we possess for England can be exciting. And my uh, feeling about England games has really been buoyed in the last few games. I think cause we've seen younger players, we've seen changes in tactics, we've seen exciting dynamic play by England. So uh, I think we'll score goals. I think we're just uh, potentially a little bit susceptible, given we don't know who our strongest goalkeeper is, who's going to be the starting goalkeeper. And still that, you know, I'm not sure Gareth Southgate knows exactly what his starting eleven is. 
Do you get the sense there's a bit more of an identity forming for England now and it's going to be players picked to play in a system rather than the old way of just picking the best players necessarily and picking slightly on reputation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what has excited me. And I'd like to think England fans is that, you know, it's not the same old story of trying to fit the best players into 11 places because that just hasn't worked, consistently hasn't worked for as many World Cups as I can kind of remember. And so, yeah, I think it is exciting. Gareth Southgate, what he's brought with him is wealth of knowledge of young players that he's brought through the 21s um, from his time heading up that age group. Uh, and he's put a trust in them. And he's he's said, yeah, we're going to play this formation. And, and absolutely, every player who comes into that squad, knowing what position they would play, they know exactly what the requirements are of that role. And I think that's a real strength collectively. Other than, as you mentioned previously, we go into a tournament hanging our hopes on one individual. I think our hopes are now on a more collective effort, which is refreshing. As you said, Rachel, goalkeeper is still probably the most uncertain position for England. Would you take Joe Hart as one of the three keepers? I think I would. Simply based, he's not going to start. I'd put Jordan Pickford as my starting goalkeeper. I think he's possessed the skills to play uh, that formation of three at the back, being very comfortable with his feet, um, playing out of the back, being almost like a sweeper keeper. Uh, that sort of Edison role for Manchester City. Uh, but as far as Joe Hart, role within the squad I think third place third, third goalkeeper which I expect him to fulfil that role and Jack Butland to be second he would fulfil that excellently well because the requirements kind of of a third goalkeeper not to bore you with goalkeeping history and, and kind of bring it on knowledge. Rachel always always happy to hear the goalkeeping history chat <laughs> I mean realistically I don't think I don't know the stats but the last time a third goalkeeper played in a World Cup I, I wouldn't know but it's very long odds, I would say, for a third goalkeeper to actually play in a World Cup. And we, you know that as a third goalkeeper. I've been in that position. Uh, and you say so you assume the role. It's not that you're not expecting and not prepared to play, but you understand the majority of your role is to be there in training as far as to take the majority of the shooting practice, if that's what the starting and second goalkeeper want. Uh, it's to basically bow to whatever they require. And as a goalkeeper union, you understand that and you respect that, whether you're first goalkeeper or second goalkeeper, you respect what each of those first, second or third goalkeepers brings to that goalkeeper union. And there's no there's no imbalance of respect or importance in any of those three roles. They're just different. And I think Joe Hart will know what's required of a third goalkeeper. Southgate knows exactly what Joe Hart brings on and off the pitch as a member of a squad as well as a starting goalkeeper because he, he's assumed that role before. And so there's no unseen factors. There's no risk, I don't think, to taking Joe Hart. Uh, whereas if you're to maybe take a Nick Pope or Tom Heaton, not, he's not seen them in that third position role. It basically, he's reducing the, the factors that could upset a squad. And very much a World Cup is about squad dynamics. And obviously, I'm slightly biased but of course the goalkeepers are the most important players in the squad. <laughs> Absolutely correct, Rachel. Thank you very much for joining us. I know. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. 
Wayne Rooney is the subject of some exciting gossip linking him with a move to Washington, D.C., the home of Congress, Fugazi and the MLS team D.C. United. American-based broadcaster Ryan Bailey joins us now. Ryan, have these rumours made much of an impact in the U.S.? Uh, it's interesting, Tom, to compare the and uh, the, the rumours around Wayne Rooney coming over to the States to how the, the Zlatan announcement was made. There was quite a mania around Zlatan, lots of excitement, lots of talk of, you know, how he's going to be talking about himself in the third person over here now. I can't wait for that. Not quite the same reaction for Wayne Rooney. It's, a very, it's very much divided MLS fans and probably DC United fans too. Based on his performances from this season with Everton, do you think he would get on well in MLS? Would he be an asset for DC United? Uh, if we base it maybe on the performances up until about Christmas Day, Tom, yeah, I think that, that might work well for him. Um, it, it, it's very difficult to tell how, how a player like Rooney will settle into the league. Obviously, it's quite a physical league. It's more, it's more physicality over things like tactics um, in, in MLS. But um, you never know. This is the league where, where Bradley Wright Phillips has scored 92 goals in 147 matches. So anything can happen here. He could be a good surprise here. He could get... I think if he returned, say, 15 to 20 goals, if he did come over to DC United, that would be a pretty good return. Is he a sort of bankable star in America? Is he a name that people will know about if they, if they don't necessarily know that much about soccer? They, they would have heard of Rooney. Well, this is, uh, this is what the debate is, is, is. Part of the debate that's dividing the fans, Tom. There's lots of people saying it's a bad deal if he does come because he's probably going to come for too much money. They're saying it could cost $12 million as a fee to get him over and that uh, he'd be paid in the region of 5 to $8 million uh, throughout the year. That's according to the Washington Post. They'll put him somewhere in the highest paid players there. And for a bit of context, that would be about a 30 to 50% pay cut from what he's getting at Everton at the moment. So there's, there's people saying it'd be too much money, it'd be bad. And that, you know, DC don't need, a, I'll put this in air quotes, gimmick, a player like, uh, a player like him to come over. They don't need uh, to, to enhance the league's reputation as a retirement league. But, the, uh, the DC United are moving into a brand new stadium this July, Tom. It's going to coincide, the, the trade window opening on July 10th, coincide roughly with Audi Field's opening, their new stadium. They've got to put butts on seats in this stadium, Tom. And there's lots of talk uh, that this could attract the casual fan. Wayne Rooney is a name that people know. You'll get a lot of people out here that say, I don't follow soccer, but I don't know who Wayne Rooney is, that I will go to watch him for that reason. Rooney, while clearly a fantastic player in his days, also clearly coming to the end of his career. Are MLS fans a little bit fed up of players using their league as a final stop before retiring? Yeah, I think there is definitely that feeling, particularly as a lot of uh, teams, as the, the, the darlings of MLS Atlanta United, as we spoke of last time I was on the podcast, um, they've gone for this model of going for younger, sort of unknown South American and Central American players. There's lots more of that going on at the moment in MLS. They're trying to move away from the retirement league thing. But there is an understanding that, you know, it, it does put the bus on seats, as I say. And it, he could have a positive impact on one thing that's interesting to note is that uh, I believe Wayne Rooney's 32. I think David Villa, David Beckham, Thierry Henry and Robbie Keane, when he joined his boyhood club, LA Galaxy, they were all 32 when they came along. Who have been the biggest successes of players like that, Ryan? Who, older players coming over to MLS to finish their career? Um, well, I think... The one that's cited is probably David Beckham, who changed it all. Obviously, uh, he he brought in the designated player rule, which is known as the Beckham rule, in that teams can break their salary caps for two players uh, per, per squad to, uh, to to encourage better players to come over. Um, Thierry Henry was very successful with New York. I think probably the most impactful player, maybe one of the younger uh, European players to come over, has been Sebastian Giovinco. 
at Toronto, who's had a very good impact and that helped them to uh, MLS Cup last season. What about the players of Rooney's age who haven't had a good time? Who are the established? Who's established a template of how not to do it in America? Well, to be honest, um, I think the, the people who jaded the American fan over the uh, players coming over from Europe at the end of their season were probably Lampard and Gerrard. They came over. Uh, they both were among the highest played players in the league, both earning, I think, between six and seven million dollars and didn't give an awful lot of return for, for, uh, for what they gave Tom. So I think those are the kind of players you'd say uh, were not successful in the model of moving European players over. Turns out they couldn't play in the same league, let alone the same England team. Uh, what, <laughs> exactly. What about DC United, Ryan? What sort of club would Rooney be joining there? Um, a not very good one is the simple <laughs> answer for that, Tom. Um, they're bottom of the Eastern Conference at the moment. Uh, last season, they finished 21st out of 22 teams. The only team worse than them was LA Galaxy. Uh, interesting to note that they got flat and it's possible that you know, the 21st worst team are going to possibly get a player like Rooney. Historically, they are a pretty good team. Now, they've won MLS Cup four times, the last time of which was in 2004, though. So they have been on a bit of a barren run. They haven't really had any megastar players on their roster, though, Tom. Maybe the ones you might have heard of might be John Hark, who uh, played over in, uh, I think, Sheffield Wednesday and Derby and a couple others in the UK. Um, but uh, if, if Rudy did join Tom, he would actually become the second most famous player at DC United because the president's son, Baron Trump, is on the under-12 development team with DC United at the moment. He could be the next Michael Bradley. Now, I'm not saying that um, Baron Trump and Rudy's careers might overlap, uh, professionally, but uh, hopefully they won't have a stormy relationship if they do, Tom, because I'm sure Barron's heard enough about those in his home life. Thank oh, you very, very well, Thank you. very well done indeed, Ryan. You've 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 beaten me to a, a, a clever conclusion to the segment. <laughs> Time for your Hero of the Week, and I am relieved to report that dreams come true even at 72. Tommy Charlton, who is the brother of World Cup winners Jack and Bobby, pulled on an England shirt for the first time this weekend as part of the over-60s walking football side who played Italy at Brighton's Amex Stadium on Saturday. Tommy was forced to retire as an amateur footballer after an injury when he was 24, but he has finally joined his brothers as a fully-fledged, if slightly slower-paced, England international, and they won the game. Matt, who are your favourite ever footballing siblings? I've got two. Um, They would have to be two. Yes. Two sets of siblings. Two sets of siblings. One is Franz Carr's dad. (laughs) who used to own a takeaway um, right next to my halls of residence when I was at uni for a year in Preston doing my NCTJ journalism qualification. And he owned this um, sort of chicken and chips takeaway and he would give me free chips and mayonnaise and lots of good chat about Fran's car. (laughs) So he is a legend. That's a story almost as good as thinking that Wilfred Zaha probably drove It's way better. He didn't give you chips and mayonnaise. It's far, far better. And... And then for his name alone, Charisma Agbonlahor, brother of Gabriel Agbonlahor. He does play, I can't remember who plays for now, he used to play for Redditch United. He's still playing in non-league somewhere, but that name alone, Charisma Agbonlahor, is just superb. And so he is my other favourite sibling. Fine, fine Forget the Nevilles and the Cloughs and and all that. Yeah, fabulous. All those successful siblings. (laughs) 
<laughs> nonsense, nonsense. Far too mainstream for us. That's all from Total Football this week, but not for the season. We'll be back in time for your Monday morning commute next week, reflecting on the FA Cup final. If you want to contact me before then, then why not go to the website twitter.com. I'm at Tom with an H Gibbs. Get to the front of the digital queue by subscribing to the podcast and make sure you listen to Jim White having a bonus interview with John Motson from earlier this week, if you haven't already. Our theme tune is by the band Polvo. Head to mergerecords.com to get involved with their back catalog. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers. If you're enjoying being part of the Telegraph Sport podcasting family, then do make sure to download and listen to Brian Moore's Full Contact. It's the most opinionated rugby podcast as every week, Brian and a host of big names from the world of oval balls analyse the biggest and most controversial moments from the weekend's rugby. Your Tuesday commutes will never be the same again, if you like rugby.